From 1985 until 1996, if you were between the ages of 35 and 45, the thing most likely to kill you wasn't gun violence, car accidents, or even cancer. It was AIDS. This crisis disproportionately affected gay and bisexual men, as well as communities of color. The lack of recognition and action to combat this illness leaves a legacy of insidious indifference that has led to the decimation of entire communities. The United States has come a long way since the silence and violence of the 80s and 90s, but just 40 years later, around 700,000 people have died of HIV-related illnesses in the U.S. alone. Worldwide, about 650,000 people die every year from the virus. HIV-positive people still face incredible stigma, discrimination, and violence even today. Despite this, we are lucky to have healthcare providers who are compassionate and kind. In this week's episode, we are incredibly lucky to welcome the only physician in the entire state of Utah who was seeing HIV and AIDS patients during the height of the AIDS crisis. This is an incredibly special episode for me, and I'm so excited to welcome you this week to the Penn State Pre-Health Podcast. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Penn State Pre-Health Podcast, the show to help all pre-health students on their journey to acceptance. I'm your host for this very special episode, John Moses Bronson, and this week I am thrilled to welcome Dr. Kristen Reese. Dr. Reese is a recipient of the 2023 Outstanding Science Alumni Award at Penn State, so we are very happy to have her. She's earned both her undergraduate and graduate degrees from Penn State before moving on to medical school at Drexel, and she graduated with honors. Dr. Reese received training in internal medicine and infectious diseases, and she was on the faculty at Drexel for many years. Afterwards, she served in the Lakota Sioux Indian Health Services in Rosebud, South Dakota, and the National Health Service Corps in Vermilion, South Dakota. Eventually, after longing to work more in infectious diseases more extensively, she moved to Salt Lake City. So welcome to the podcast. Is there anything big that we missed from your background? No, it was perfect. All right, good. Um, So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from. What was a young Kristen like? She was very young <laughs> and very protected growing up at a farm in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Okay. And in actually my younger years, elementary and middle school, I went to a one-room country school with four grades in the room. One room. And yeah. You don't even I, hear about that anymore. <laughs> I think they're gone now, but that was really interesting. And so when I went to the consolidated high school, I was behind Yeah. my peers who went to city school. Yeah. And I never caught up until I think I was a graduate student here at Penn State. Yeah. Um, and I love my farm life. You know, <laughs> you can take the 
things out of a person, but you can never take the farm out of a girl. Yeah. And so I still like farming and things, and so in my retirement, I have chickens and things. Oh, my gosh. My so growing up, my dad loved having chickens, and so we also had a chicken coop. There's something like just so like pleasant about the sounds of chickens. Chickens are wonderful, and yeah. they're very good pets, mm-hmm. and they're very smart. Actually, people don't realize that they're mm-hmm. very smart. I think that's true of a lot of farm animals, and Absolutely. a lot of people don't want to see that. I think for reasonable reasons, we don't want to think of farm animals as too smart. Helps us keep a level of distance from the fact that we eat them on a regular basis. We used to eat our pets all the time. Yeah. And hence, I rarely eat meat anymore. (laughs) Okay. So what you sort of like grew up out in the country and then you had this bigger high school experience what brought you to Penn State of all places because it's even back then it was a bigger institution in comparison you know my sister was here oh we're uh, as you call it first generation yeah and uh, our sister was here and so she was a senior when I was a freshman and then my brother came after and was here too how many siblings do you have my, just my brother and I left. My sister, shortly after leaving okay. here, uh, got killed in a car crash. Oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry uh, to hear that. But um, she got a good thing, and she got me involved in some things at Penn State. So that was a helpful thing. Yeah. Uh, having her here and then coming here. It's really hard even nowadays for first-generation students in higher education. I can't imagine how much more difficult it was back then. You know, we talk about this thing called social capital all the time and how that is like a big factor in whether students are successful and they stay all four years and graduate with degrees. What was it like? You know, you sort of had the benefit of your older sister, but what were the struggles that you encountered as, you know, when you first arrived at Penn State? What was particularly hard for you? In the first couple of weeks, it was just the traffic noise. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> but, but after that, I found out that uh, I was way behind my peers as far as knowledge. Yeah. And that's because many of them went to big schools here Mm -hmm. in New York and had already taken advanced courses. And basically, their first year was a repeat of many things. And for me, it was the first time. And so when you start behind, it's very hard to catch up. We still see that. You know, we, we call that now being academically underprepared. And nowadays, we have programs to help students who probably don't start on the same foot as other folks because of differences in resources. But right. I, I, I doubt that we had those sorts of support programs back then. At least I didn't know about them. I was yeah. too shy. And um, that's why I like meeting with the students now and everything. And I'm involved in Utah in some pre-medical school where we're looking for underserved people to go to underserved populations. Yeah. And we have a special program that's to catch them up. Great. Where they get a free ride scholarship to medical school and all they have to wow. do is be committed to underserved inner city farmware. Yeah. Um, but they're not held to it, but then they do that. And what they do is they're accepted on 
those terms, and then mm -hmm. they take the first year, and if they pass it and they do everything right, mm -hmm. they end up getting totally accepted to medical school. They have to repeat the first year, okay. but it gets everybody on the same plane. And That's it's amazing. a great program, I think, and we hope that we know that people that are underprivileged usually go more out into other underprivileged areas. Well, yeah, there's a, that personal connection. Right. Right. Do you feel like that was like part of what drove you to wanting to serve the are in the indigenous populations in South Dakota? I think it was my family background. Yeah. I, mean, I grew up in Quakertown and happened to be a Quaker. <laughs> and uh, I think it's that kind of an upbringing that I had that is always looking yeah. to help the underprivileged and underserved people. Yeah. And so I've always wanted to do that no matter what I did. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about that experience uh, because a lot of our students think about underprivileged populations primarily in like black and Latinx populations, but they're not really thinking about the huge health disparities of the people who were here before we invaded. What was that experience like for you? I think it's one of the most important things I ever did was to leave academia and actually go out to a place I never knew existed until yeah. the recruiter happened to come and barred my office to recruit other people, <laughs> and he ended up recruiting me. <laughs> and uh, it was a wonderful two years. And mm -hmm. I say I might have stayed even longer, but it was during the Wounded Knee Uprising. Oh. And it was, you know, the second Wounded Knee. And it was very violent there. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't believe that I was taking care of all kinds of wounds and things. Yeah. And the FBI recommended we leave. Wow. Because uh, it wasn't safe. And that's how I ended up in Vermilion, the National Health Service Corps. But I was never afraid. In fact, I took Good. care of many of those AIM, American Indian Movement people, and mm -hmm. they were great people. Yeah. They weren't bad people like they wrote up in the book. Um, but I just had to go with the flow, I guess, with yeah. everybody else. To stay there alone would have been hard. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I think in our society it's easier to paint people with broad strokes it makes it easier for governments to control the narrative around what's happening. I want to be careful that I'm not <laughs> too uh, insulting of our national government, but it has been far from perfect in its history. It still is. Oh, it is. Um, absolutely. And I think when many things the government is doing now, and I don't want to get political either, are, a little bit here and there doesn't hurt anybody. Well, we condemn China for what they do in genocides. That's exactly what we did. Yep. And we all know that if we read some of the books. Yep. But when you go and live there, these are very wonderful people mm -hmm. uh, who really never had a chance. I think they're doing much better now. Yeah. And they're speaking up for the, themselves. And I think you have to speak up for yourself. Mm -hmm. I think... Some of our students that come from the Western United States, I think, have a lot more awareness of the really violent and insidious history that we have with the Native people. But the students that are coming from Pennsylvania predominantly don't have as much awareness. And I think it's because we've kind of pushed all of those Native peoples out. Right. In the West, there's still reservations. And so there's that interaction. There's that opportunity to learn 
we don't really have that here. And I think it's a real failure of our education system that we're not bringing that up. I had no idea until I went there. Yeah. And um, when you go, you realize how bad it was what we did. Yeah. Just recently in Utah, you know, Utah had the Mountain Meadows massacre. And it was written up as the Indians attacking the local group that moved mm-hmm. in. And just recently now they're admitting it wasn't that way. It was the local people that attacked the Indians, and they're really coming to terms with it. Yeah. And I'm feeling really good about coming to terms with some of the past. Yeah. I, you know, it's very small in comparison because I think we should always be taking more responsibility for not our own personal actions, but the actions of the people that came before us. We can't heal unless we do that. At Penn State in the past few years, there has been a broader conversation of the fact that our university sits on lands that were stolen from Native peoples. And in most syllabi, for courses nowadays, there's a land acknowledgement saying, you know, that we are on the land of these peoples. I think that we could be taking a little bit more responsibility in the wording of that. I think they talk about the gratitude to those people, but that's perhaps a conversation for a different <laughs> for a different time. But I think yeah, it's important that we mm-hmm. recognize all people. Yeah. And we don't even know. I mean, I'm sure I have said some terrible things mm-hmm. about other groups, yeah. but it was not, I might even do it today, Yeah. but I'll, I'll blame it on my age or something. <laughs> but, you know, especially with that, as long as it's coming from a place, for me, I feel like if it's coming from a place of ignorance, but not malintent, I'm happy to have a conversation. I'm happy to chat about that, educate people. It's all about the intent a lot of times. You're absolutely right. And I think if we could emphasize that more than just jumping, (laughs) it would be such a good thing. I agree. In, you know, I teach first year seminars for students who are coming in wanting to be pre-medicine majors. Mm -hmm. Many of them will go to other majors that they're happier in. I'm cool with that. But what I want to expose them to in my classroom is how different populations experience our systems differently, not just healthcare, but the world, education. And I think that has really helped our students come into these conversations with more intention and care is to start talking about it early. This is a part of the college experience is to talk about the failures of our world and how we can improve them. And part of that is is about coming into conversations that you just wouldn't have had before. Like, look, they're very lucky to have you. Oh, um, thanks. Because I was too shy, and yeah. maybe the people were there that could have helped me, but I wasn't aware of that, so I never asked yeah. for help. You know, I didn't know you could talk to the professor. <laughs> <laughs> and they're so good to know that. And I think is if you really have a passion and want to do something, you need to work towards that. And even if you have to leave it, I went through several things after mm-hmm. I left pre-med and stuff, and I ended up in medical school anyway, which is what I always wanted to do. Yeah. And so you just have to keep your passions yeah. and get help. Yeah. So if I could tell anybody what to do, get help. Yeah. Don't forget your roots, but get help. 
Yeah, it's it's difficult to do that because for a lot of students, they feel like if they fail, it reflects on not just them, but people who share the same identity as them, right? There's the stigma of being from rural places. I'm sure you dealt with it. I know I dealt with it, of being perceived as being less intelligent, right? When I came from I originally lived in Virginia and I moved to Pennsylvania. I had a very thick Southern accent. It was incredibly thick, but everybody thought I was very stupid. And I eventually learned to speak without that accent because that's not the person that I was and that's not how I wanted to be seen. And so at the time, it seemed best to change myself into a version where I could be myself as opposed to pushing through that. It was a lot easier to learn to speak without an accent than to convince people that, yes, I sound this way, but I am very smart. And I ended up being one of the top students in my classes, but they didn't know that for quite a while. Yeah. My thing is, I think God spread intelligence equally everywhere. And just because you don't have an education or you're Mm -hmm. just trying to get it doesn't mean you're not really smart. My parents never went to college, but they're the smartest people I know. Yeah. They were really intelligent. They read a lot on their own. They had to learn a lot. And so you don't, you just have to persist. Yeah. So why did you, so what was, this is not information that I actually know. What was your undergraduate major at Penn State? I started out in pre-med, mm-hmm. and I had great difficulty, yeah. um, and my grades were average till I flunked a five-credit course, and that'll kill you forever. Mm-hmm. You'll never bring your grade it's point average up. back from that. But there's many other attributes, and you can always improve it by going on further, like I did for a master's degree, mm-hmm. in which I was straight A's, you know. But at Penn State, I learned how to study. Mm-hmm. I learned the language of just living. Yeah. In, with people. And I can thank that to all the people I met here. I was in a sorority and we enjoyed that. Yeah. And uh, it was a, a good good thing for me. Yeah. And so by the time I ended up and went to medical school, I didn't struggle anymore. I was really yeah. doing well and I loved it. I think this is an important thing for our students because a lot of students think, well, I got to see in organic chemistry. I can't become a doctor now. That same idea persisted from decades and decades ago. And I've had an admissions officer say point blank, I don't give a frick, and I am cleaning up my language because we can't have explicit content on the podcast, but I don't give a frick about whether or not you got to see an organic chemistry. I care whether you persisted through and what that tells me about you. And did you improve in some way after that? And that's exactly what you're talking about. This Your journey doesn't have to be perfect for it to be a valuable journey, to be able to provide value to these schools and for you to you know, build the skills that you need to be successful. There is so much value in struggle. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I had the opportunity to meet with a professor from the medical school mm-hmm. when I was in graduate school. Yeah. And I had to show, just show me around the medical school. Yeah. And um, for some reason, he saw something, just what you said. Yeah. And I was back here. Mm-hmm. And in the next month, I got a letter from the medical school that said, if you take the MCAT, 
repeat that chemistry course you want. And I happened to didn't know I was colorblind, but I found out later. And if you get a test that shows you really are, because I'm red, green, colorblind for Uh sure, you can join us in September. Wow. And that's how it happened. Somebody saw something. Yeah. Despite my bad undergraduate record, (laughs) and I excelled there. Yeah. What did you get your master's degree in? Biological sciences. So you had a good background. I had a good background, and I had. I will still emphasize you need those sciences. I know that medical schools are not looking at necessarily those people anymore that have the big sciences. Mm -hmm. You need liberal arts too. I I failed because I didn't get any liberal arts because I was right after Sputnik. (laughs) Everything was science, science, science. And so I've had to learn all my liberal arts on my own by reading. Yeah. Which I love, but um, you can do it. Yeah. I like that about the process now is that there is a lot more balance in what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. It makes for very dynamic, interesting students. I love my work. Students I work with are so cool, and you get to see them at medical school. So you get to see them after these wonderful years of growth. Yeah. They're such an exciting population. They are. And it's amazing what so many of them have done in their undergraduate work. Yeah. Really. They've done in their undergraduate work, which which in my age, years ago, Mm -hmm. would have been after medical school. Yeah. They are really amazing. I'm continuously impressed. And I've been at this for a couple years now. (laughs) I'm not new to the game. I've been here for a while. And almost every day, I'm just surprised by the incredible students we have here at Penn State. And I feel so lucky to be here because I think Penn State pulls a really interesting mix of students that perhaps we wouldn't see at a pit or a UPenn. I feel very lucky to be at Penn State specifically. I, I can't say enough nice things, and the people in Utah laugh at me <laughs> because even with football, I, I didn't... I was cheering for Penn State and not the Utes, which made me very unpopular. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not surprised to hear that. Everybody loves their football teams. <laughs> yeah. So what's it like being back on campus? When was the last time you were here? Really, I drove through a year ago and I didn't recognize a thing <laughs> and still don't. It's unbelievable. This building was here. In fact, yeah. I understand it was the health center, which it I was my sophomore year. I spent a week here with influenza, yeah. the Asian flu, pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that affected my grades as well. But. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, the room that we're currently in. Uh, was a storage room that was turned into a podcast studio, then turned back into storage and now back into a podcast studio. (laughs) And it started its life as a room for someone who was sick at Penn State. Yeah, well, I did spend a week in one of those rooms. So it was somewhere. Maybe it was in my office. We'll have to stop by, see if it brings back any memories. (laughs) Hopefully not. Hopefully that has been put away. So... All right. So we had all these experiences and we landed in Utah. What was that like, uh, you know, specifically in Salt Lake City? What brought you specifically to Salt Lake? Well, I was trained in the subspecialty of infectious disease and terminal medicine, which yeah. I love. Yeah. And I love the bugs and drugs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I wanted to move to a bigger town. I love South Dakota, mm-hmm. but it 
the town, you know, is where the University of South Dakota was, mm -hmm. a town of 5,000 people. Mm -hmm. And you can't do infectious disease or subspecialty in a town that small. No. So I thought I had to go to a bigger town because mm -hmm. that was my true love. Yeah. And I applied three different places and mm -hmm. got a job in Utah. What has been your favorite thing about living in? Because you've stayed in Utah. So I assume there's something there that you really love and enjoy. There's almost everything. Yeah. You know, basically the basic people are wonderful. Mm-hmm. But it's the terrain. It's beautiful. It's, it's hiking. Mm -hmm. You know, I even did Angel's Landing once, which is scary now to think about. I need to but hear about Angel's Landing because I don't it, know what that is. It, it's in Zion's National Park. Okay. And you climb up on chains and everything to get to the top of this little place and look forever. Wow. And it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. But every year somebody falls off. <laughs> and... I don't know what I was doing there. I was like, but I was much younger than that. <laughs> uh, skiing. Yeah. I tried it. It's supposed. It, I think it's the best skiing anywhere in the United States. Powder, powder. I don't know. So I thought I was forty years old. I'm going to try it. Yeah. It was not for me. <laughs> I wanted to sit by the fireplace. <laughs> that is also where I feel most at home in yeah. the winter time. <laughs> but it's beautiful. It is. And I fell in love with the mountains. Yeah. I. Uh... Over the in last August, it's not exactly the same, but I, I visited uh, my husband's sister in western Montana. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Is it beautiful? It is beautiful. I have never been so enamored with, like, a place as I was when I visited western Montana. We don't think of Montana as, like, this gorgeous place to be. If I could afford to live there, I sure would. <laughs> well, it's beautiful there. We actually, in infectious disease, we have this organization mm -hmm. called the Pus Club. <laughs> it's the Rocky Mountain Pus Club. Uh -huh. And we meet in all those kind of places like McCall, mm -hmm. Idaho, and Western. That's kind of yeah. like right by Western Montana. Oh, it's so beautiful. And all over the whole Rocky Mountain area, mm -hmm. and I've been to all those places, Red Lodge, oh, there, there's not a place you don't want to visit there. Yeah. You know, we have, you know, in Utah, we have five national parks, and um, and the Great Salt Lake, which unfortunately is shrinking, um, but... but it, Climate it, change is real. <laughs> it, yeah, tell everybody, but it really is, and uh, so that it's, it's really, you know, I've noticed there that uh, we don't have many people from Pennsylvania, but we have some. Yeah. Well, I have a friend that's a graduate of here also. Wow. One of my colleagues' uh, sons. <laughs> um, but but it is really a great place, and uh, it, it they that's what they say. It's a great place, and Good. it is. Yeah. I'm glad you found home there. And I think for a large number of people, I think that they're very glad that you found home there. Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, you arrive in Salt Lake, you're like, I'm ready to study infectious diseases. And then this new one comes out almost as soon as you arrive in Salt Lake. You're not going to believe this, but it's true. Yeah. The Center for Disease Control yeah. Medical Mortality Weekly News, they put mm -hmm. out every week. Yeah. Now it's on computer. Um. On June the 5th, 1981, they described 
these young men that were very sick with this pneumonia in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. in New York. And that was exactly the same day I drove down to Salt Lake Valley to move there. And being infectious disease, I said, oh, it is going to be a big one. And I just followed everything I could follow about it. And with the job I had, it was with an HMO Mm -hmm. and starting out in general internal medicine, working up. Um, I I tried to teach all I could to my colleagues. because I was the head of adult medicine there, and I tried to teach them about gay health. Yeah. And I had to learn a lot myself because I didn't realize I knew anything about it myself. And there wasn't like there were websites. No. <laughs> that you could no. look up. There was no Google. There was no Ask Jeeves. No. It, you know, I can't believe how things work. Yeah. Uh, and I followed it, and within a year of working at this HMO, I saw my first case. Yeah which was somebody that was having primary disease, and there was no testing then. Yeah. But I knew it was that, and so I called the health department up, and I said, you know, I have this patient. I'm really concerned because he keeps getting sexually transmitted diseases. Yeah. And I think I talked to him. He's a nice guy, but he's not careful. Yeah. And maybe you could talk to him. Yeah. And the health department said, Dr. Reese, that's never going to be here, so we're not going to do anything. And they didn't. But wow. I still begged people because I could see it coming. Yeah. And then before I knew it, I had two patients. Mm-hmm. And then one of my colleagues' husbands was an infectious disease person training at the university. Yeah. And he moonlit at the local hospital, and he had three patients with HIV. And he was leaving to move to Seattle. And the university wouldn't take those patients. Jeez. And he kept badgering me, badgering me. You know, you got to leave and go into private practice and take my patients because nobody will see them in Utah. Yeah. And after he badgered me really bad, that's what I did. Yeah. And then just one patient led to another patient, led to another patient until we saw, before we left that private practice, it was more, it was thousands probably. Did you, have you ever seen another disease or sickness treated like this by the health department in the, in all of the rest of your career? No. Mm. Um, I, over the years, um, like in South Dakota and places, in infectious disease, we saw a lot of sexually transmitted diseases Mm -hmm. and TB, and a lot of physicians weren't comfortable seeing those patients. Mm Uh, but never anything like this. I couldn't believe it, actually. I, I just couldn't believe it. First of all, it was intellectually and scientifically interesting. Yeah. So, And it didn't matter who had it, because in the beginning of the epidemic, it was really the hemophiliacs, mm-hmm. sex workers, mm-hmm. people who had transplants and got blood transfusions. Mm-hmm. They were just a mix of patients. Mm-hmm. And even nobody would even see the hemophiliacs once they got HIV. And it took me many, many years to realize that part of it was unkindness, and but most of it was really not understanding. Yeah. And I learned from my own ophthalmologist who thought I was going to be dead soon, <laughs> back in those days, that they were truly afraid. Yeah. They were so afraid they would take something home to their parents or to their spouse or their children. Or they would do something, yeah. yeah. 
fear is unfortunately a very impactful motivator. It is all, all not always a positive motivator. Right. And that's unfortunate. But I found it so interesting because I got all excited about COVID as well. I, <laughs> being old now and at risk, I yeah. got all my friends to not go out and be careful in December of 19, right when it was described, because I said, this is going to be a big one. Yeah. You and can see the writing on the wall now. I don't know what <laughs> what it is, but um, it, it was. I just was so excited about it. But it was interesting to see. It's a different disease. Yeah. Respiratory. Yeah. So, so many pulmonologists and acute care people were involved. They embraced it and rushed in to do it. Yeah. Which was so different than the AIDS. So, yeah. you have to say there were some other things going on. I think, you know, one of the questions that I had sort of written ahead of time was that, you know, do you think that the AIDS epidemic is unique because of the particular sort of culture and political climate of the 80s? Do you think it's sort of an artifact of that, that we handled it in the way that we did? Or do you think if AIDS sort of appeared in today's time, do you think we would handle it any different? If it hadn't appeared then, Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah. Because um, there's no question the stigma was the big thing. Yeah. And fear. And I don't know why. It, it actually boggles my mind mm-hmm. that people really didn't care if they got COVID. Yeah. And But what happened with I observed, and mm-hmm. I might be wrong, that many of the medical profession that I knew, when they were stressed and tired from taking care of all those people with COVID, they became stigmatizing those patients, especially mm-hmm. if they wouldn't wear a mask or wouldn't do any of the things that would be proper public health procedures. Yeah. You know? I think sometimes it's, unfortunately, it's sort of this manifestation of sort of the worst parts of human nature that make things things as bad as they are. Yeah. And that's sad. And it it's is hard sad. for healthcare providers. I can't imagine how difficult it is. It, this COVID's really worn them down. Mm-hmm. Um, I just talked to my colleagues and I'm not working now, but I, I think that it's interesting because there was the stigma for HIV all over the world the same. Mm-hmm. We spent two months in Kenya teaching and taking our medical students there. And the stigma was just as bad there. Yeah, I, I I like to think that, like, you know, the AIDS epidemic was sort of, in the United States, is sort of this, I don't like to think, I feel like it was exacerbated by sort of the culture wars of the 80s. And I don't want to get into that too much, because then I think we'll be here for like four hours, and neither of us have time for that. Right. <laughs> But, you know, stigma and then denial are a really deadly combination. You know, what what is sort of your hope for how we differently handle an epidemic like the AIDS epidemic in the future? What do you hope is different for us as a culture, as a community of health providers? I would like to see the whole healthcare system change. <laughs> Uh, same. <laughs> uh, because 
picking and choosing your patients isn't necessarily the good thing. I think things are so complex now that specialization is important. Yeah. And so, yeah, if you practice some far out thing like plastic surgery, you might not be expected to see people with HIV AIDS unless they yeah. have a plastic surgery problem. But if they do, you should. Yeah. And um, I don't, I'm not even aware of the culture wars of the 80s, I hate to tell you. No, it's okay. Because I was so busy fighting AIDS. <laughs> so I missed, I, you know, I have that tendency to be blindfolded to go after yeah. what's right in front of me, which was a lot of patients dying. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, I, I watched, um, for our listeners who don't know, there's a wonderful documentary called Quiet Heroes. I really encourage you to watch it. It's in, on Amazon Prime. You can rent it. I bought it because I thought I was only going to rent it. And then, like, my husband started watching it. And he's like, I thought this was going to put me to sleep. But now I don't want to sleep and I want to talk about this. <laughs> so that was, like, very cool. But they talked about how at, at the beginning – there wasn't like a light at the end of the tunnel. You were really providing end of life care. Right. And, you know, in my class, we talk about um, this book and this documentary called Being Mortal. And it's all about the difficulty that physicians have talking about end of life care. And for them, there are these like small percentages of people who may recover with certain treatments. That simply wasn't a reality back then because there was nothing. How did that affect you knowing, like, I, I have to be here for these patients, but there's literally nothing that we know we can do right now? Well, as a physician, there was a lot that could be done. Oh, okay. Because with HIV AIDS, once you have AIDS mm -hmm. and you're far advanced and you have no T cells yeah. and you can't defend yourself... Then you would get all these other infections. Yeah. And exotic infections that would invade. I mean, they described the pneumocystis fungus. Now mm -hmm. we thought it was a, see that? We thought it was a protozoan, but it's a fungus. <laughs> and um, cytomegalovirus eye disease that made you go blind mm -hmm. and all. But we developed so many medications for all these things. In the beginning, we didn't even have testing. Mm -hmm. In Utah, HIV testing came in 87, or 85 rather. Wow. 85. And so we didn't even know for sure what they had. It was just a descriptive term. Yeah. They were um, kind of looking at clusters and, of symptoms, I yeah, imagine. And, and luckily there came medicine for CMV and we could prevent people from dying blind. Yeah. And it came different things and different things. So we could actually extend life, which doesn't sound like much by a month mm -hmm. or two. Because yeah. the average life expectancy back then, when it was just by description, mm -hmm. no testing, was six months from diagnosis. And we could do that. And then AZT, the first drug, came along. Mm -hmm. And, wow, they say now it didn't work, but it did. Yeah. It extended maybe until they lived over a year. Yeah. Well, that might not sound like much, and some people in the public health arena thought well that's a waste of money you know <laughs> I mean because they're thinking statistics and yeah. everything but for that person that six months was very important to make things right to reconnect with family if they could yeah. not everybody could and do all those things yeah and then time is a powerful gift 
it is for most people. Some people don't care about that, but it, it was really important. In the early, like 1985, the University of Utah, which wouldn't take any patients, asked me to come and present my patients to them. Mm -hmm. And I did. I presented my first 25 patients. And um, if you didn't have sarcoma, which is the cancer that got on the skin and everything, your average life expectancy from diagnosis was six months. Mm -hmm. And if you had Kaposi sarcoma and it came out on skin first, it was 18 months. Okay. At least in my group. Mm -hmm. And that was really a differentiated. And then my average age was 33. That's really young. That's very young. Very young. These were all young people. And so it, it was a really desperate situation at yeah. the time. One of the things that I've noticed is that predominantly the people that cared for this population tended to be women. Is that surprising for you to hear at all? No, it's not <laughs> I don't surprising. Think so either. A lot of women stepped up. Yeah. Um, and there were a lot of actually gay doctors that stepped mm -hmm. up, and many of them had AIDS themselves. Yeah. And and did that. Yeah. One thing is I. Nobody at the university knew anything about it, and so yeah. here I am out in this, which was, Salt Lake was pretty small back then. Yeah. And so I got to know all the people because I thought, even as shy as I was when I was at Penn State, yeah. I reached out and I called those people that wrote that article in MMWR in Los Angeles in New York, mm -hmm. and they became friends over the years Yeah. because they helped me. Yeah. We take it for granted that building networks are is is so easy nowadays with the you know the blow up of the internet and information is so accessible right now those connections that were so much harder to come by back then but this the power behind them is so important yes. and we are very lucky at penn state that we have such a wonderful alumni network you know it's massive and it's so powerful and it makes differences for our students all the time um so this is mostly a plug for our students to like try and engage with the alumni network it is big it is powerful it is useful please do it you know i know we need to wrap up because we don't have that much time left which is very sad to me because i really feel like we could talk for hours we could but you know and I, the last question i'd like to hear is like i know that you've retired what's your like favorite thing to do nowadays what is what's daily life for you i went back to one thing i used to do here and took two courses in it Birds, ornithology, <laughs> and uh, the ornithology I learned here actually. Yeah, um, I still remember that this little bird, dead bird, oh. and you identified them and everything. Yeah, is still holding out for me. I can recognize a group and everything, and do all the things mm -hmm. I learned here. And I love to go bird watching, and mm -hmm. just like there's flyways here, Utah is a flyway because of the Great Salt Lake. Mm -hmm. We have millions and millions of birds that fly through there and uh, hundreds of yeah. species and uh, so it's a very active birding area and I like to even travel for birding so I, on the trip here we stopped in Kearney, Nebraska which is the Sandhill Crane capital of the mm -hmm. world and it's the week of the festival Ooh. so uh, we saw they say a millions come and I'll tell you they were everywhere 
Yeah, we we have a my neighborhood is um we must just be like in just the right place for the airstream. Yeah. <laughs> so we will have just like it looks like the sky is darkening because there's just so many birds in the sky. Wow. But it is beautiful how they all fly together. Oh. So I get it. Yeah. The way I'm we... not quite as talented at identifying birds as I'm sure you are. I'm still learning. I have this wonderful application on my phone. I, I... take a picture of the bird and it tells me what it is. That's my level of bird knowledge. <laughs> That's very good because there's all these apps now. You can get them identified. It's and... But I'm not good at taking pictures, so I have to just guess. Neither am I. <laughs> I'm not good, but thankfully the app yeah. is better than my my poor yeah. uh, photographic skills. Yeah. And I'm so happy I'm still on the admissions committee. Yeah. Um, which is not time consuming, no. but it, it's a good thing because you get to see what's going on. Yeah. And it, you never end up like sometimes we go and volunteer a class at mm -hmm. the main campus. Or, yeah. So it, there's never enough hours in the day. Retirement is wonderful. Good. Then you can do everything. Yeah. Well, I guess like the one last thing before we quit is you mentioned you're on the admissions committee. For all of our, our students who are pursuing careers in the health professions, what's the biggest piece of advice that you would give them? There's a couple. Oh, good. One is when you go into the website and mm -hmm. start applying, mm -hmm. obey all these things they say. Don't think you're above it and you don't have to write this essay or this or answer that question. Just do exactly as they say. Yeah. And make sure you're complete on it, mm -hmm. that you don't mention everything that they asked for that you've actually done. Because mm -hmm. uh, so many people don't take credit for a lot of things you've done. And we as the admissions committee have to figure out what they've done. Yeah. I think that's really important is to do that. I think that's that issue right there is particularly pronounced with our underrepresented populations, our first-gen students. And that's a battle we fight a lot, is something might not seem traditionally like what you should be including, but you have gained so much. I had a student that had the same job for eight years, and they're like, well, I'm not going to include it. It wasn't in medicine or health science. And I'm like, you have gained so many skills through that and it's an important part of your story you can't leave it out right it's essential to us understanding where you're coming from your perspective it gives context to perhaps why you didn't have as much time to do other things as your peers it's an essential part of your story absolutely and i think we see that like you say in the underrepresented people yeah. is they're working yeah you know if you have to work you can't do all those wonderful things that mm -hmm. you'd like to do yeah. or you don't have the money to do it either a yeah. lot of people can they can't afford like everybody gets so impressed sometimes oh they went abroad and did this or yeah. did that so many of our students can't do that and yeah. that doesn't make them a lesser student exactly. it's just they didn't have the opportunity so yeah. i think it's really important to do that yeah and also have somebody oh. read your your essays. Oh, please, to our listeners, we provide free application coaching. We will review all of your materials for free. There are companies that will charge you five, six, seven, eight thousand dollars. We will do it for free. I don't care if you are the wealthiest student that this university has ever seen. I don't care if you're an alumni. I don't care what campus you're at. I will read everything we will go back and forth on it we can have multiple meetings 
please take advantage of our services. We want to help you put forth the best possible application that tells you your story in the best possible way. And I think that's really important because the admissions committee, just like the community, is made of all kinds of people. Yeah. And some of them are very narrow and very precise. Mm -hmm. And they're just going to throw your thing in the trash yep. if they think you just didn't do something. Yep. But we look at you look somebody, we don't want somebody that hasn't had any liberal arts and stuff because that is important. Yeah. And if you're an artist on the side, that's important. It is. It's whatever so whatever many skills. makes you you. Yeah. Because we want the class to mirror the population mm -hmm. so they can go out and practice for everybody yeah all right thank you so much for your time this has been such a wonderful gift for us thank to you. have this time with you um we would like to send a huge thank you to the Everly College of Science Alumni Relations Office for helping us coordinate this interview. We'd, of course, like to thank our guests. Thank you so much for taking the time, for your candor and your insights. And lastly, thank you, listeners, because none of this would be possible. We would not be doing this if this didn't provide value and you didn't enjoy it. So thank you for joining us this week on the Penn State Pre-Health Podcast. Penn State Prehealth Podcast is a production of the Prehealth Advising Office and the Everly College of Science at Penn State University. It is produced, edited, and promoted by the Prehealth Advising Team. The views, opinions, and advice shared during this podcast are that of the hosts and any guests only and do not necessarily reflect the best advice for every student at every institution for every health profession. This is a nonprofit podcast made for the purpose of better serving pre-health students across our university system.